What's up, podcast audience? We got a really cool conversation topic podcast episode for y'all today get gonna get a little bit of a personal history of myself my family what we call genetics um and what we're born into we're going to talk about hearts heart health um and how important it is whether it's diet nutrition exercise medication preventive medications i've been through the ringer ever since probably around august 9th 2006 when my old man mr orv passed away of a heart attack and um, i've been i guess kind of anal maybe not anal enough but anal enough to be on some medicines and have a personal relationship with my heart doctor, Dr. Michael Block. I want to make sure I get this right. Vascular medicine specialist managing disorders of the blood vessels and risk factors for heart attack and stroke. You got it. That's me. You studied this in college. Uh, a little after college. It's a, it's a long road. It's, it's a, a long, long road. road. I was actually a history major in college. But uh, yeah, I always knew I wanted to go to med school. And it's something I came to over, over time. Um, I can tell you the whole journey if you're interested. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. So Because I'm, I'm envious of medical, <laughs> of MDs. I think it's a great, I just think it's awesome what can happen with this type of career. It's a long path, but it's a super powerful uh, degree to have. You know, and I've, uh, I've really relished my, my time as a physician. But yeah, so I, I studied history as an undergrad and uh, always knew I wanted to go to med school, though. I was kind of just attracted to both the, the science of it, but also I'm kind of a popular population health and, and preventive guy, as you, as you well know, and I uh, wanted to, you know, the simple reason of helping people. And so uh, after undergrad, I spent some time, you know, traveling around, worked at a bar for a while and uh, a couple of bars, actually, um, as an aside, I'm probably a better bartender than I'll ever be a doctor, but um, <laughs> uh, my patrons are usually happier then as well. But uh, eventually went on to med school, uh, did all that on the East Coast um, and uh, started, was planning to do orthopedic surgery, actually, for most of medical school. Um, but, you know, one of the things about orthopedics is you treat one patient at a time. And really, I was interested in, in programs and, and, and working at, at systems of care that could help you know, take care of whole populations. Um, so I went into internal medicine, right? It's a long road, four years of med school. Then I did three years of internal medicine training uh, in Manhattan. Um, and after that, sort of searched around for what I wanted to do. Um, I liked cardiology and cardiovascular physiology. And so the natural route was to be a cardiologist. This is, by the way, looking in the mid nineties. So, um, dating myself. Um, and I said to myself, you know, cardiologists are, are, are for the most part, they're good people, but they are really interested in doing tests, really interested in doing procedures. Cardiology is really all about procedures. It's about taking care of people who already have disease. And here we were 25 years ago, thought, man, I'll tell you what, by 2022, there's no way that we'll be focusing cardiovascular medicine on do procedures. We'll be focusing on doing prevention. So I said, how am I going to put myself into a position where I can practice prevention? And that's really how I got into vascular medicine and blood pressure and cholesterol and the things that you've seen before. So real quick, if you don't mind, doctor, what would the education difference be or what is the difference in your business card saying cardiologist and what would it say right now as far as like the title goes? Yeah, that's a good question. It's a somewhat vascular medicine is what my, my title says. Um, it's a somewhat unusual medical specialty. Um, I'm not one of those guys who tends to follow the beaten path, right? Uh, so it's something that's pretty common in Europe. Vascular medicine is not that common in the U.S., particularly back when I started in the 90s. A couple big programs uh, that had just started back then. So I was kind of one of the first vascular medicine uh, folks around. So, you know, vascular medicine, um, it's a slightly different training program after, after internal medicine. Um, so, you know, we all do med school, 
We all do internal medicine. And the cardiologists do what's called a cardiology fellowship. And then they may do fellowships uh, after that in terms of different types of cardiology. I did a vascular medicine fellowship. So diseases of the arteries, diseases of the veins. Um, and importantly, and I always say when you talk to one vascular medicine person, you talk to one vascular medicine person. We always look at it a little bit differently. Uh, but for me, it really concentrates on prevention, on blood thinners, on uh, blood pressure, on cholesterol, on diet and exercise, um, and identifying patients before they have disease. I always say I'm trying to put the cardiologists out of business. You know, my job is to make sure they have as few patients as possible. So with that being said, and I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but the way that I look at your career of, of having a crystal ball per se, now we can't stop certain diseases. Like you might just wake up one day and I guess have a lump and go in and find out some bad news. And I hate the thought of that. Scary. Um, but in your case, you stay in good shape, you exercise, you have a crystal ball through education and you have this like foresight of being able to say, I know it can happen if I do this. Has it been um, a process in your life, Dr. Block, to where you have lessened the chances of making bad decisions based on everything you know about cholesterol and the widow maker and everything that I want to get into today. Do you ever, have you ever found yourself making the wrong decision when you know it is based on everything you know about what can happen with that decision being made? You know, I, I struggle with, with diet and exercise like everybody does. So in terms of foresight, what I know I need to do, right, is I need to keep track of my, my numbers. I need to keep track of track of my blood pressure, my cholesterol, and my sugars. You need to avoid, obviously, unhealthy habits like, you know, uh, smoking uh, cigarettes and, and stimulants and things like that. Um, but what I struggle with, like all my patients struggle with, is uh, issues around diet and exercise. You know, I've spent a lot of time, you know, studying nutrition. I've spent a lot of time, you know, studying exercise physiology and spent a lot of time making recommendations to patients about those things. But I'll tell you what, in our society, it is hard. And that's, I think, the thing I'm, I'm as guilty of as anybody is reaching for the Doritos bag uh, more often than I should. So do you, when you sit down and talk to somebody, we can use me all day long as your examples today, um, do you kind of, if I, you know, a lot of CEO mentality when they're coming up as the ranks in the business, they're like, I'm not going to ask anybody to do what I wouldn't do myself. Do you say stuff to them based on what you're seeing on their numbers and you can still go off and do it based on yours? So like you can't walk into a restaurant and see Dr. Block eating a fried fish sandwich and be like, hey, what are you doing? Man? Yeah, smoking a cigarette and, you know. So yeah. like when you're an athletic trainer, you don't want to go in there and be 40 pounds overweight and be telling somebody to get on the floor and do a bunch of abs. You want to look the part. So how does that play a role in your everyday decision-making process that if I did sneak up on you and catch you eating a bag of Skittles or a, a fried fish sandwich or whatever it is, how, how does that play a role in your everyday decision? That's why I travel. So I can do those things <laughs> so without you running into me. Uh, no, but yeah, it, it, it's something I think about. I think about it when I'm, you know, at, at the grocery store and people are looking in my, my grocery cart. I think about it when I'm at restaurants and, and people, you know, see what I'm, I'm eating when they come by me. This is a small community uh, we live in. People see those choices I make. And, you know, once again, in terms of, of you know, just trying to control my weight and, and trying to 
to look the part, as you say, when folks come to my office. And it's not just me. I mean, I have a whole team of people, which we can get into, kind of the team approach uh, to, medi- uh, to medical care. But I, I'd say that's true of our whole team. We try to, to, to really walk the talk, right? We try to, as best as we can. And one of the things I, I, I recognize, though, is you got to meet people where they are. You know, for most of the people that I talk to who are at risk of heart disease and stroke, you know, it's often a combination of, of lifestyle changes and medicines. And there's going to be some people that you talk to or like, you know what? I am. I'm willing to, to do what it takes to lose 40 pounds. I'm going to get on the treadmill every day, right? I'm going to be the poster child for lifestyle modification and really want to do everything I can to avoid medicines. You're going to see the complete opposite, right? You're going to see people who really aren't able for a lot of, there's a lot of reasons why people can't make those changes and they're going to need to be on, you know, more medicine. And for most, I think it's a combination of two, of the two, but finding where a person is on that spectrum, like how much are they willing to commit to these lifestyle changes? How much can they commit to these lifestyle changes? Because it takes time. It, 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 it takes, it's expensive in, in many cases to, to buy higher quality food. Um, but, uh, and it's tough, particularly if you're already overweight, um, it's tough to, to lose that weight. And when you talk about, uh, uh, it's funny cause you said, you know, how much do I want to project to my patients? Like as a, as a role model, that is, uh, you know, an interesting point that does come up sometimes is when I talk to patients about weight. Yeah. Your, uh, listeners can't see me, but I'm a pretty skinny guy. And, uh, I do get that a lot about what does that skinny guy know about weight loss? He's never struggled with weight. And I do have to bond with them about, yeah, you know, I, I, just like anybody else, I could be overweight, right? I may not have the genetics. I may be luckier than some, uh, but it takes, it takes work. It takes work. It, it's not easy in our society to, to stay trim, to eat well, to exercise. Okay. Let me ask you this, just being bl- yeah. blunt. I want to talk about the advancement of medical and research and medications and preventive medicines, even since you've gotten your medicine degree, your MD. But do mostly people that die from heart, oh, let me rephrase that. Are most of the people in the United States of America that die from heart failure, heart attacks, heart disease fat? Um, yes, because most people are fat. The majority of people in the U.S. are overweight or obese. If you're of normal weight in this country, you're actually a minority. And it is the main driver of the risk factors for heart disease and stroke, right? So we always talk about, we talk about secondary prevention, primary prevention, and a concept called primordial prevention. Right. So secondary prevention, I do a lot of people have already had a heart attack and stroke, making sure they don't have another one. So we do that. I just assume not. What I'd rather do is primary prevention. That is identifying people who have the risk factors for heart disease and stroke, like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes, um, uh, and treating those risk factors with a combination of lifestyle changes and medicines. Um, But what we really need to move to as a society, and you're doing this with a lot of the work you do uh, um, um, in terms of of diet, in terms of, of education about nutrition, about education about exercise, is we need to move to what's called primordial prevention, which is preventing that high blood pressure, diabetes, high cholesterol in the first place through diet and exercise. And that's not about just you and I making changes in what we order tonight at dinner. It's about what's available to our kids in schools. It's about what's available in grocery stores. It's about what we get served when we go to bars and restaurants. Um, uh, it's about you know uh, having communities uh, that are safe to walk in and to do other forms of exercise. Um, that's what I'd, I'd love to be doing. Um, uh, as a community. But back to your, your original question is, yeah, it is a, a, a main driver of heart disease and stroke ultimately is overweight, obesity, 
and uh, a decrease or lack of exercise. Throw in smoking, throw in some genetics, because genetics are a big problem. I would, the two big risk factors that you can't do anything about uh, is you can't pick your age and you can't pick your family. So those are, uh, those are risk factors you can't always do something about. But those other ones, many people can. What did you call it? Pre-mortal? What was the uh, name? Primordial prevention. Primordial con- prevention. So you're telling me, and I want to make sure I understand yeah. this, Dr. Block. With my history or my genetics, could I have prevented my cholesterol levels at a young age or my upbringing through college, through my, my 20s, 30s, with the decisions I made, could I be off of cholesterol medicine right now? So I'm glad you asked that question because you're an unusual case. You're the exception that proves the rule, right? So for most people who develop high cholesterol like you have, it's a, a combination of lifestyle changes and uh, genetics. But there are a small percentage of people who have specific genetic abnormalities that lead to really high risk and that really the only option is medicines. The condition that you have, um, that your family has, and that you know, most likely your father had, is called familial hypercholesterolemia. And you know, this is great to draw attention to. Uh, we talk about it as a rare condition, because it is, right? It's relatively rare. About one in 200 Americans have this genetic condition. It's a single gene that's messed up that causes really high cholesterol levels. Um, and like I say, one in 200, it's a couple ways of looking at that, right? That's pretty rare, but think about the number of people who come through my office. It's actually pretty common in my office. So people with FH, people with FH, um, or familial hypercholesterolemia, we call it FH, it's really underdiagnosed. Um, it is uh, uh, identified by people who have really high cholesterol levels, usually an LDL cholesterol or bad cholesterol that's over 200, can present even at a young age, um, and usually with a family history of heart disease. It's really your story. Um, and identifying those people are, are really, really important because the sooner we identify those folks and get them on medicine, the longer they're going to live, the better they're going to do. Um, and so it's, a, it's a, a relatively unique situation, but it's one that we need to be identifying more. The other thing that's really important about FH, and we've talked about this with you, I don't just know you, I know your brothers, um, and I already see there's a nephew out there I need to talk to, right, is it runs in families. So when you identify a case of FH, we get the opportunity to uh, uh, screen the rest of the family members um, and see who else has the same condition. So how old would that family member need to be? You mentioned my 11-year-old nephew, my daughter, Alyssa, his first cousin's 11. They're nine days apart. Can you find that gene through a blood panel at 11 years old? Uh, you can find that gene uh, through a saliva test at, at any age. What we usually recommend, though, is uh, 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 just a blood test for cholesterol at about age 11 to 13. So uh, we got to get them in there now. Yeah, sooner rather so than later. So sooner than we identify this and they have the gene... What happens with an 11-year-old if they do have it? So, you know, assuming that the other parent, right, doesn't have normal cholesterol, and there's some really rare conditions where that happens. But for the most part, it's giving those kids an opportunity uh, to make some lifestyle changes, um, to recognize this is going to be something they're going to have to to work with for the rest of their life, and then eventually they're going to end up on medicine. We usually don't, uh, unless the cholesterol is really, really high, we usually don't treat kids. We usually don't treat adolescents with the condition. Uh, But once they get to about 18, 20, um, that's when we, we usually will start in with medications. We start a lot later with you. There was probably already some buildup of cholesterol plaque in your case by the time we started on medications. 
So with the advancement in technology, the advancement in tex- testing, the advancement in medication and preventive medication, with over 50% of our co- country being obese or what they label obese, which the, the body mass index and the scales that you look, if you're 6'1 and you weigh 190 pounds, you're considered obese. Well, do you work out? Do you have muscle mass? What's your fat content? What's your, uh, your, fat, your body fat percentage? I don't necessarily go by those charts. Yeah. But with that being said, at this point in 2022 in America, are a lot of people dying of heart attacks as much as they were back in 90 and before that? So, yes. The uh, number of people who die of heart disease and stroke has come down very little very since little. in the 90s. Um, and part of that is, uh, is remember, you're the minority people, right? You had a genetic abnormality that is not true of the 99% of people who end up at risk for heart for heart attack and stroke who have, you know, multiple genes and, and environment uh, that, that lead to their, their heart disease. Um, so what's happened is we've, yeah, we've gotten better at certain technologies. We've got better medicines. We've gotten better with testing. But what we didn't recognize was going to happen, as I say this as a public health person, um, in the 90s, we didn't recognize how much people were going to gain weight. And that has, so although we have better blood pressure control, better blood pressure medicines, better cholesterol medicines, better blood thinners, the fact that we are, as a society, gaining weight and exercising less is tipping those scales back towards people dying of, of heart disease and stroke. And we haven't seen, you know, the when I was in doing my training in the late 90s, we thought we'd really, you know, not have this problem licked, but be doing a lot better job in terms of decreasing what we call cardiovascular mortality by this point. But we were really kind of shocked by what's happened to, to diet and, and exercise in, in this country. I work out. I do okay with my diet. When I'm home and I'm in my routine, I do a lot better. I don't eat very many sugars at all, but I drink some alcohol, which does have sugar in it. Um, I have this abnor- this this genetic thing. How do you tell somebody like me at 47 years old not to worry and not to stress? Because there's two other things that can cause heart disease or, or the chance of a heart attack from what I've been told at least is lessen your stress, learn how to relax, learn how to breathe, learn how to, you know, put that all away, put work away yeah. for a while. How do you tell somebody like me as my doctor, my only heart doctor, that I'm going to be okay and don't stress about it as long as you do this, 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 and this. But I, you know, like how, how can I not worry about it? If I, if I, cause I, I think that I just read into what you said that I'm a pretty good candidate for heart attack or stroke. Yeah, well, so it, this is the art of medicine, and maybe I haven't practiced the art of medicine well enough with you until this. I'm glad we have this moment to talk, right? And so it's trying to create that balance. And um, you want to have, I want to have my patients concerned enough that they pay attention, concerned enough that they take their medicine every day, which we can talk about in a minute, about how few people actually do that, concerned enough that they make the lifestyle changes, concerned enough that they get their blood work done, follow up with their appointments, follow their diet and exercise, not just when they're at home, but when they're traveling too, um, without scaring the crap out of them, right? And having them stressed out about it all the time. You know, and, and that's a, it's a, it's tough to find that balance. So I say it kind of the way you said it, right? Is yeah, if you take your medicine, if you pay attention to diet and exercise, if you get your blood work done, you come into my office and talk to my staff and get your blood work measured, you're gonna be fine. You're going to be fine. You don't need to worry about it. But if you don't do those things, 
If you don't do those things, the natural history of somebody with FH, the natural history, that is, without treatment, what happens to somebody with your particular genetic abnormality is the average man has their first heart attack at about age 50 and is usually dead by age 60 without treatment. But with treatment, right, you're, that risk goes down dramatically, 80, 90%. Are, right? we, making the, are we making the average lifespan? Uh, of yes. American male, which yes. is what, 72, 73 now? I think it's gone up a little bit since that. I think it's in the in the high 70s. But yes, absolutely. Um, this is a treatable and blood pressure, cholesterol. You have a really significant cholesterol abnormality based on the FH, that diagnosis that we talked about, the one in 200 people. But even in your case, we can get it down. I mean, these things are, are treatable with a combination of, of medications and diet and exercise. And you know, what I don't want my patients doing is I want them hearing the message that they're at risk. I also want them hearing the message that we can decrease that risk. I don't want them just throwing up their hands and saying all is lost. I'm going to, I'm going to croak here in the next 10 minutes. Right. Uh, I want them to understand that you're at risk. You make these changes though. We can get that risk down considerably and get rid of, there's a, a term we use called excess risk. What's the excess risk that you have because of these conditions, right? Yeah. I can't, tell you you're going to live forever if you take your cholesterol lowering medicines, right? Um, you could walk out of here and get hit by a bus just like I could, right? Right. But you're going to get rid of the excess risk that's associated with the high cholesterol. Wouldn't that be something if you walked out of here and I got hit by a, a bus with a cholesterol medicine advertisement going down the side <laughs> That would be, yeah, that would be, a, okay, so uh, it would be ironic. Here's some of the things that I've experienced since becoming a patient of yours. I've had ultrasounds on my neck, to, yeah. and I want you to follow, try to follow as good as you can because you're a very educated man. I want you to tell me why I did this. Maybe I want to name them so I don't forget them, but I had one on my neck. I've done one on my chest where they went down the lower ventricles of my chest and did an ultrasound. Then they went down to my ankles in this test that you sent me in, and they did some stuff around my calves and my ankles in an ultrasound. The lady was able to give me the results right there. She said, it looks good. And, and then I went to you, and there was nothing that, that raised panic. One of the things that you said was you have the heart of a 52-year-old man. Our job now is to not, you're never going to go back down to a 47-year heart, but our job is to keep it at 52 when you're 60. That's what we're going to try to do through medicine, exercise, diet, and everything. What were the, were the ultrasounds doing on my neck, my arteries, looking for the plaque buildup? Um, and I want you to end your answer, please. By saying, how anal do I need to be? Do I have to go in every two months to get these tests? Every six months? Every yeah. two years? How how many times should I see you in a given year? Yeah. So once we get things under control, you know, coming in and, and seeing us every six to 12 months, getting those ultrasounds every couple of years is, is enough. You know, and, and that ultrasound, what we were looking at specifically, and once again, this is... You're a, a unique case. You know, most people don't need to be going out and getting an ultrasound every every two years. Um, but as I, I mentioned uh, earlier, I didn't get to treat you when you were 18, right? And so I didn't know, we didn't know how much plaque was built up, how much well, the, the process is called atherosclerosis. That's the buildup of cholesterol plaque in the wall of the arteries. We didn't know how much was there before we started. Right. And so that's what the idea was behind those ultrasounds is to see how much plaque was there. Is there a lot of plaque and I need to be more worried and get your cholesterol down even further than it is? Or is it not too bad, which is the case? It's not too bad. And uh, uh, where your cholesterol is now is fine. And then, of course, once we have that study, 
man, we can go back and we can look every couple of years and make sure it's not getting worse. Um, so these specialized ultrasounds in the neck, it's something called carotid IMT, intimal medial thickness, is an emerging tool that we use um, to try to get past just trying to, uh, trying to calculate or, or estimate somebody's risk of atherosclerosis. Um, which was traditionally what we've done. We said, ah, all right, you're this old, you have th high blood pressure, you have, here's your cholesterol numbers, let me estimate your risk of having atherosclerosis. We're now developing the tools where we can actually go and we can look at the blood vessel. That's what we did in that and see how much atherosclerosis is building up in the wall of the blood vessel. So it's a powerful tool, it's great for young people. There's another even more widespread tool that we use for this same idea, which is called a coronary calcium score. Some, uh, I'd love for your listeners to, I'd love to be a, uh, you know, just a, a herd of people going in tomorrow morning asking their doctors for a coronary calcium score. A coronary calcium score is a CT scan. You know, it's really pretty accurate in your 40s, 50s, and 60s, your age, 40s, 50s, and 60s, that looks for calcium in the wall of the arteries that, are, are, that lead to the heart. And where there's calcium, there's often that buildup of atherosclerosis. So once again, when we're making the decision about, do I need to treat this person's cholesterol? right? How aggressively do I need to treat this person's cholesterol? Instead of just guessing how much atherosclerosis is there for 99 bucks in our community, some communities, $119, $129, you can go in and get this test. That'll be a pretty good approximation of how much plaque is there. It's not for everybody, but for a lot of people, it's really, really helpful. You know, our, our, in their wisdom, our insurance companies and others haven't figured out that they probably should be paying for it. So it is usually a cash pay. Um, but like I say, we've been able to negotiate it down in our community. I think it's $109 uh, now, but it's a, a very valuable tool called a coronary calcium score. And go where to get it? So uh, you usually need an order from your doc. Um, so you just go to your uh, doc, any family practice doc, any internal medicine have doc, I had this cardiologist. You? you did have a coronary calcium score once. You had a little bit of calcium, um, and uh, but it wasn't very much. Uh, but you did have a coronary calcium score. It was a number of years ago. Um, but uh, um, it's 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 definitely a, a, a tool, particularly for people who are at sort of intermediate risk and you're trying to make the decision about whether or not you want to treat them with medicines. You, we knew we wanted to treat with medicines. Um, we know your family history. We know your genetics. We know your cholesterol numbers are off the, we're off the charts. So it's a lot easier call for you. But for some people, it can be a lot more difficult uh, to make that determination. So when you... We, I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm on this medicine. Yeah. I stay on it as best I can because at one time I got off of it and you ripped my ass. You're yeah, like, I what did. are you thinking? Because my numbers went back up. Get it under control. But it's not a cure-all. Like, I can't use my medicine as an excuse to eat Dairy Queen and Burger King every day, correct? And we've been talking about nutrition and exercise, but does it give me a little bit more leeway to cheat in other aspects of my life if I'm on this medicine? You know, the easy answer is no. It's always a combination, right? The med medicines never do as good a job as your body does at controlling these conditions, right? Once again, you have this unique issue where you, you really need a medicine for this genetic issue. But yeah, the medicines are, I always say they're kind of stupid, right? And your body's smart. And your body's better at treating these conditions than the medicines. So I'd like to always do as little with medicine as possible and as much with diet and exercise. And that's particularly true about blood pressure. Um, you know, we haven't talked a lot about blood pressure, but blood pressure is also a high, high blood pressure is also a really important risk factor for heart disease and stroke. 
like cholesterol, it's what we call a silent killer, right? You don't know you have a high blood pressure unless you get it measured. Um, and yeah, there, we have tons of medicines for high blood pressure. You start having to put them together though, and you can have more side effects. Um, so I'm always talking to my patients about trying to, you know, we need to use some medicine, but gosh, I'd rather not have to use a ton of medicine. I'd rather we start making some better lifestyle decisions, right? So we can use them together, right? Body's always smarter than the medicines are. So when when you start, start working out, you have pain, your muscles are fatigued, you work out a little bit more, you, your muscles get used to it, they start to develop more muscle memory, all of that stuff. You quit working out, and you lose it fast. I mean, it's a matter of like a month and you feel like, oh my gosh, I feel like tell I Tell me about out. it, brother. It's crazy, I'm 55 right? years old. Yeah, tell me about and it. And you lose it fast. Is it the same with medicine? If you're on it and you're, and you're on this preventive medicine like I am with this cholesterol that you have me on, this cholesterol yeah. medicine, I'm taking the daily dosage of two different medicines that we're going to get into. Um, and I stay on it. And then all of a sudden I'm like, oh my gosh, it's been 40 days since I've taken my cholesterol medicine. Either my script ran out. I didn't get a refill from you. My insurance quit paying for it. There's all kinds of different reasons. Or I'm just an idiot and I went on the road and forgot about it. Usually the third one, right? <laughs> yeah. Does the medicine, <laughs> does your body react the same way as kind of my working out analogy to where it, your cholesterol will go through the roof again if you get off of it for, let's say, a month or two? Yep. Works as long as you take it. That it's just that simple. It's just right? that simple. It's just that simple. It works as, as long as you take it. Just like exercise, right? If you just, you said it yourself, right? You stop exercising in a few weeks, you're right back to where you were before you started. It's the same thing with the medicines. The way the the specific cholesterol medicines that you're on uh, work is they help pull excess cholesterol out of the bloodstream into the liver, so the liver turns into a whole bunch of stuff. Um, makes LDL receptors. Those are the LDLs, the bad cholesterol. Makes receptors on, on the liver, um, and those receptors live for about you know. Know, there's like a life cycle of about three weeks. So yeah, after you've been off the medicine for three weeks, you're right back to where you were. There's a related issue though that I think is important uh, uh, to recognize. Sometimes people think like when you go to the gym and you do the same exercise over and over and over again, um, it does, you don't get as much benefit from it, right? Um, people think the same thing about the medicines, right? Is, is it not going to work as well if I stay on it day after day after day? And the good news is that's not the case. I'll, I'll teach you a big word. It's called tachyphylaxis. Tachyphylaxis would be that, that if it stops working, you don't see that with our, our blood pressure and cholesterol medicines. As long as you take them, they work, and they continue to work um, as long as you stay on them. Dang it, I had a good point. Okay, if I forget on Thursday to take my medicine, can I double up on Friday and get the same results? Or is... Do you just say, okay, I forgot Thursday and I'm just going to take my regular dosage on Friday? Yeah, it really depends on, on the medicine. So in general, we say just, just take your regular dose on Friday. Don't try to double up. Don't try to um, double up. Yeah. So, I mean, there are some medicines that if you try to double up, you can have increased risk of side effects. Um, not the ones you happen to be on, but that it can happen. I played baseball all the way up to college. Hurt my rotator cuff, hurt my ulnar nerve in my left arm. I was a lefty. I work out. I developed some pain in my pectoral muscles in my left and right side of my chest. I talk a lot. So my face kind of seizes up. When I was in public speaking courses in college, they would teach us facial exercises and stretches to relax the muscle and the cheekbones and everything. Where I'm going with this, Dr. Block, is that I feel pain in my jaw sometimes. I feel pain in my chest sometimes. I feel pain in my lat sometimes from a lat tear in baseball, rotator cuff tear in baseball, ulnar nerve in my elbow. 
um, my forearm gets really tight from whether I'm shooting a lot and pulling the trigger, whether I'm riding my bikes or anything with my UTVs and four wheelers, I'm getting older. So I get some pains in my left, my forearm. You kind of see where I'm going with this? I like, certainly do. When do I finally go, I got to go to the emergency room because this pain is real. Because as, as, when you get into heart heart problems or genetics, you start to like maybe psych yourself up. Well, if I get pain in my left jaw, the left side, when my dad died, he said that he had a dream and a nightmare that night that a bird, a raven or an eagle, or I can't remember the bird, flew into his tent and attacked him and kept biting him in his left arm all wow. through the dream. My mom, who's a nurse practitioner, said he was having many heart attacks all through the night and that was that pain going on in his arm. It's always the left side. Is this true? Is this folk relic? Or am I onto something with, when do I know this is the big one? Yeah, it is super hard. It is super hard. I, you know, it, it, it's hard to generalize. And, but I always say, um, as a general rule of thumb, if it's unexpected, right? You don't have uh, a reason. You went through a whole litany of things and you had a reason for every single one of them, right? Yeah. So if it's unexpected chest pain, particularly if it's associated with exercise, right? So it's not like, oh, I go to bed, my chest aches, right? It's I get up, I, I get up out of bed, I walk to the end of the hall and ah, I got this, this chest pain and it can radiate, as you said, down to the left arm. And some people, it can just be in the left arm. It can go up to the jaw and some people it can just be in the jaw. But classically, in most people, the, the term is angina. That's the chest pain from, from having a heart attack. It's, it's chest pain with exercise. It's often associated with feeling nauseous or sweating. Um, and so you get, you know, you don't have the benefit of getting to hear the stories over and over again. You know, I can pick it out pretty quick. And that's why, you know, I think if your listeners have questions about it, right? Not that they need to inundate their, their, their providers every single day, but usually we're pretty good at it. We, we do this all the time, right? It's pattern recognition. I can usually tell um, uh, what's going on by, by hearing the story. Um, so, you know, if it's, if it's unexplained, um, if it's associated with exercise, uh, particularly if it's associated with those other symptoms, you know, nauseousness or palpitations, that's when you need uh, to get it checked out, particularly if you have risk factors for heart disease and stroke. You're lucky, though, because you're a man. Uh, what we just talked about is what we call typical angina. One of the problems is we see just as many heart attacks and strokes in women. We know women don't get treated as aggressively when they have a heart attack and stroke. We know they don't present as early, right? They'll, they're tougher than we are, so they'll sit home and, and, uh, and have symptoms for a lot longer than we will before we go run in the emergency room. And their symptoms tend to be more atypical, less typical. So you'll see like, oh, they just, you know, maybe just some nauseousness with exercise. They don't get that same chest pain oftentimes. It can be a real challenge uh, making the diagnosis in women, a lot easier in men. Wow. So when you, when you start talking about a heart attack and you all, you mentioned blood pressure being the silent killer, cholesterol being the silent killer. Can you have a heart attack without any of that going on? Uh, pretty unusual. It, you know, everyone always, you know, uh, would talk about that at conference. Everyone always raise their hand and, and talk about the one person that, that didn't have high blood pressure, didn't have high cholesterol. Yeah. There's an exception to every rule, but almost everybody, you know, has, has risk factors, blood pressure, cholesterol, high sugar, smoking history, family history. Those are the big ones. Um, and, you know, you can know your family history. You can know whether you smoke or not. But those other three are silent killers. You don't know what your blood pressure is unless you go and get it measured. You can get your blood pressure measured at home now. There's great devices that are available. 
You don't know what your cholesterol is unless you get it measured. Most people need to go to the doctor's office to get their cholesterol measured. But actually, in a lot of communities, you can go right into a lab and order it yourself. Same thing with sugar. How often every year should I do that? Cholesterol so check. You once we now we got you on a on a stable regimen. I usually recommend every six months. Okay, um, so it's time. Is it time? It's time. Yeah, because I haven't seen you since duck season started about yeah. six months. So it's time. Um, but yeah, for people who are are uh, you know worried about their cardiovascular risk, and I hear all the time that people are worried about their their cardiovascular risk. You got to know your numbers. It's a big American Heart. I've done a lot of work with American Heart. It's a big American Heart thing. Is know your numbers. Know your blood pressure. Know your cholesterol know your sugars. In general, most Americans, you know, who are not on medicine, you know, don't have a problem, should have those things measured at least once a year, at least once a year, um, maybe two years for some uh, young, of your younger listeners. Uh, but you got to know your numbers. I went to my pulmonologist the other day, first time ever. Asthma, 13 months old, diagnosed with double lung pneumonia. Both parents were smokers. They quit the day I got diagnosed with asthma. Um, 118 over 80 was my blood pressure in a doctor's office. Pretty legit for me. Yeah. I guess now it's supposed to be 70s for the bottom number. Like it's, it fluctuates. Do you, besides the silent killers of cholesterol and blood pressure, can you have a heart attack with any of the, without the physical signs of the chest pain, of the nausea, of the sweating, of the jaw, the left arm, any of that? Uh, you can. We we see people sometimes who come to the office have had what we call a silent heart attack. It's pretty unusual though. Um, most people, and, and sometimes when you go through and you talk to people who, where you see the changes of having a previous heart attack, like on their ultrasound and you're like, oh, they may have a history where there was something that they didn't seek attention for. Um, and so that happens. Um, but yeah, most, most of the time people have symptoms. Most of the time people have symptoms. And really the goal is, you know, to decrease the risk of those things happening. Decrease uh, the risk. Yeah, decrease. It's all about, it's all about knowing your risk and, and knowing what to do about your risk. When you start, when you, I keep going back to exercise and yeah. diet. Yeah, yeah. It's, those uh, are so two of the things we can control. A lot of males that I know, and I don't know, I'm thinking of females are, they love cardio, most of the females mm -hmm. I know. A lot of males, including a lot of personal trainers, don't like cardio. There are runners out there. There are guys that'll go and run a 5K or a 10 mile or a marathon, whatever, half marathon. They'll train cardio a lot. When you say exercise for heart prevention, heart yeah, disease yeah. prevention, heart attack prevention, are you, I kind of get the notion, not just through you, but that I would assume that cardio is more important than weight training or does it both help? Yeah, so there's been a tremendous amount of, of research that's looked into that question. And yeah, you can split hairs and you can get people in different camps. But I think the I, I think the preponderance of the data says it doesn't matter. Just do it, just right? Do it. Just like Michael said, you know, just do it. It doesn't really, you know, uh, it doesn't really matter. You like doing aerobic exercise? Go do that. You like to do uh, strength training? Go do that. You like to do yoga and Pilates? You know, go do that. I think for the most part, doing a mix of things helps probably the best um, and helps maintain your your musculoskeletal health by doing a, a bunch of different things. Um, I certainly know that some, there is this weird thing too, where people who do real extreme aerobic exercise, you know, the ultra marathoners, the people who do like multiple Ironmans a year, um, they actually have her, uh, they put so much stress on their heart, they actually have an increased risk of heart disease. Um, so, you Ooh, know, I generally, yeah, I wouldn't want you, so in case you were thinking about, you know, becoming an ultra marathoner, I don't want you doing that. No, <laughs> is less, is um, 
okay, you say, well, I don't have time to go to the gym. We'll walk yeah. to the mailbox. Yeah. Something is better than nothing is my point. No question. And, and I would say that, you know, for most of us, I just use myself as an example, you know, shorter interval burst training, right? Working out harder for less amount of time and doing it more often is the way to go. I mean, I try to do something every day, right? And I'm probably pretty good about doing something five days a week. Um, yeah, maybe a couple of those days are a longer workout, but you know, sometimes it's just doing some push-ups and sit-ups and throwing some, you know, dumbbells around before I go to bed, right? Um, you know, try to do something, uh, something every day. And yeah, you know, they, people talk about, you know, I, I work at, at a hospital, or, you know, I park on the, uh, I, I could park on the first floor. I tend to park on the sixth floor and I walk up and down the stairs every, every day, um, a couple times a day. Every, every little bit helps. How much stress or I don't know what the word, I guess stress, pressure in my exercise with my condition or somebody that, that, you know, might have a little bit of a cholesterol issue, a blood pressure issue. There's heart rate monitors out there and there's this thing that we call interval training Yeah. to where you could get your heart rate to 170, 180, 190. Some people really push it. Then they interval it back down to 130. They sometimes will get into a a Stairmaster workout or a, a, um, a treadmill or something or an elliptical and they'll get in what we call the fat burning zone of, yep. you know, you take your, a, I can't remember the, 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 the Pelag, the Pelag, Pythagorean theorem, yeah. a plus a squared plus B squared equals C squared. There's some kind of theory out there or equation, but, um, you can get in a heart burning zone of a fat burning zone of 143 maybe and keep it there and stabilize it. But interval training, I like that. I like, like, yeah. I like burst of explosion, yeah. you know, jumping. Can I, push my heart, Dr. Block, at this point with my genetics, my medication, can I push it and get it to that 170 mark and then bring it back down? Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Have at it, right? Uh, you know, vast majority of people, no limitations. Unless you've, you're having symptoms when you do it, cardiovascular symptoms, you know, chest pain, something like that, or you've just recently had like a heart attack or heart surgery or you have an aneurysm or something like that, you know, except for those rare circumstances, have at it. Okay, good. Have at it. Have at it. So, we talked about signs and you get what you, you mentioned and you example of walking down the hall and feeling something associated with exercise. Um, there's this heart attack that I've heard about called or something in the body called the widow maker. And if this happens yeah. to you, your chances of survival are, I don't know what they are anymore in today's age, but I hear that that's like you're, you're smoked. My dad felt chest pains all throughout the day. And then all of a sudden he dies that afternoon in camp. Um, what is that? Yeah. What, what is, should it, can it, can, my, I guess my question, Dr. Block is you mentioned that ladies might sit there at home and be tough and feel it. And it's a heart attack happening and they might even go to sleep and then wake up the next day and, 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 and slept through a heart attack. Is that possible? Or like, you know what I'm saying? Like, will a heart attack get to the point where it's going to kill you? Will it keep building up until it kills you? Not necessarily. So, uh, yeah, the widow maker is, you know, just a, a really proximal lesion. My job is all plumbing. I'm just a glorified plumber. Actually, they're more. I, I make less than the plumbers do. I mean, <laughs> try to get a plumber to come out here. And I'm sure it's a lot more, lot more difficult than getting me to come out here. But uh, uh, so it, the the where in the the plumbing, the heart attack, the blockage happens depends on how poorly you're going to do without treatment, right? And so yeah, if it happens way down the line, if it's just you know the sink in the bathroom that uh, you have a problem with. It's not going to do a lot of damage to your house, right? You're going to be fine, right? If that's where the blockage is. But if that blockage is, you know, where the water's coming into your house from the street, 
and that's where you have the blockage, you're screwed, right? Yeah. You know, that's, and that's what a Widowmaker is. A Widowmaker is, is at the really, the, the, what we call proximal, at the front part of the plumbing. And that's why it can be so so devastating and, and lead to such a, a big heart attack. Yeah, a lot of people will, if they have a heart attack there, will have what we call sudden death. But it's still, it's a minority of people. Um, if your dad had gone and, and uh, you know, we fix those all the time. We put stents in them and people having heart attacks. Um, usually you got about four to six hours to get in there and get that blood vessel open. Usually, even in a, even in a, like a widow maker situation, as long as people don't have, don't have, uh, don't have sudden death. Stroke you got to be even faster. So we haven't talked much about stroke. You know, uh, symptoms of stroke or sudden weakness in an arm or a leg, difficulty speaking, uh, what we call a vision cut, where part of the vision uh, you can't see. Um, and that is, that brain dies really quickly. My wife's a neurologist, so uh, I got to make sure I, I have a shout out to the brain, right? Else she's going to be upset This is about like me. the movie Step Brothers. Uh, this yeah, is like exactly. House of Geniuses. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know about that. Uh, she's a lot smarter than I am. Uh, but uh, yeah, you really so any stroke symptoms, um, you want to call nine one one and get that uh, and and get uh, seen as fast as possible. Because just like you know, back in the eighties and nineties, we started putting stents in the heart and people having heart attacks. Um, now we do it in the in the brain. Uh, they will actually uh, you go into a major stroke center. Um, they will find uh, do a, uh, take a catheter, take it up those arteries that are there, fish out the clot, restore blood flow to the brain. Uh, but you got to do it pretty quick. Time is brain. When you when you call nine one one and you're waiting on the ambulance or the care flight or somebody to get you to the hospital, I've heard cough. I've heard um, are there and talk of heart and stroke because both of these are yeah. related. Are there things that you can do if you are experiencing a heart attack without medical help readily available until you get there? Yeah, not a lot. Um, uh, if you really think you're having a heart attack, pop an aspirin. Um, we tell people that. I'm actually working with, there's a bunch of interesting technologies out there. I'm actually about to go do some work with a company that um, aspirin takes a minute if you eat it. Uh, I actually work with a company that uh, has an intranasal uh, aspirin. You can just hopefully someday you'll be able to shoot that up in your nose um, if you think you're having a heart attack or a stroke. Um, but that's, that's about all you can do. I mean, it's really, you know, getting help, getting to where you can get treated quickly. Man, I think it's I think it's so fascinating that the heart is looked at in so many different ways in American society before you even get to the health of it. You got all of the the compassion and the <laughs> love and all of the those those feelings of, of what the heart's related to. And it's amazing to me, like, you know, the science of the heart and the blood flow through the heart and how it works in correlation with the brain and the spinal cord and, and in your skeletal system and everything in your nervous system. And I'm not a medical doctor by any means. I don't want to ever come off that way, but I am so infatuated that it, the heart that is supposed to be so special that goes through so much breakup and gets broken and gets <laughs> mended, it can actually be the thing that can kill you if you're not careful. And I'm not trying to sound tacky or weird in a way, but the heart is so important in so many different ways that it's almost like we owe it to ourselves to go get checked out no matter who we are, no matter what our genetics are. And a lot of the things that you correlate with a seeing a hospital and the pain that goes through them or the pain in the ass that going to a doctor's office can be that it can be very like time consuming. And people are like, man, I just don't want to do it. You owe it to yourself and your loved ones to go in and be part of this, what you call preventive lifestyle to, to 
lessen the chances of it ever happening. Because I, the reason I wanted to have you on so much is that I want to live forever. I love life. And I'm not trying to tell you anything that nobody in the world knows. Life is precious. Hell yeah. I look at my daughter when I'm in the pool with her or wherever. I want to be exercising with her. I want to be active with her. I don't want to be... I don't want to die at 54 like my dad did. I'm scared as hell to die at 54 when I'm only seven years of, away from that. I can't imagine that. My mom being a widow at 54 years old. It's crazy to think, and I know people, my dad's dad died at 49, Dr. Block. He was only 49. So I want I, I want to get the message out there that you, you love life. You love the outdoors. You love your family. You provide for all these people. You have to take care of yourself. There is ways to take care of yourself. And for years, I went through the notion that, it can't get me. I'm fine. I don't live the same lifestyle as my dad. I don't eat dessert every night. I don't fluctuate from getting real big and then going on an Atkins diet and getting little and then eating a carb again and getting big again. I'm not trying to be that, leave that lifestyle. It can still get me. And I think that what I'm so thankful for is our friendship, our relationship. I could text you say, Hey man, during the COVID, I had this high blood pressure. You're like, well, it's probably COVID. Go get a test. Went and get a test. Sure enough, COVID. But I think that with today's technology and what you specialize in, we owe it to ourselves as a, just a general population and to our families that we provide for to go in and get checked out because you can prevent all of this in, if, you, if you really take the steps to do so. Amen, brother. I, I couldn't agree more. And it is, it is an investment. It's an investment. You know, I, I talk to people, I use that analogy all the time. You know, think about all you go through to, to make sure that you're going to be financially comfortable. You and your family are going to be financially comfortable in your older age. I mean, not just you, but all your listeners, right? We think we, we spend a lot of time with thinking about that. If you don't have your health, right? None if you worth. can't walk to the mailbox without having chest pain and, and uh, shortness of breath, right? If you've had a stroke and can't talk to your, your grandkids, you know, what good is all that money in the bank? And so it's an investment. It's an investment in, in your future. And hell yeah, it's frustrating. I know being in a doctor's office is frustrating. You know how I know that? Because I'm in one every day. every day. It's frustrating as hell. It's, uh, our system is broken. It's a pain in the ass. Um, but it, it, it's still the best. It's the only one we have. Yeah. And uh, um, throwing up your hands and, and saying it's too much trouble, it's too expensive, I'm not going to do it, doesn't hurt anyone but yourself. And so at the end of the day, it's like something, it's something that's got to be endured in some ways. Got to find the right provider to work with. I appreciate all those nice comments you said about me. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, you got it. You just got to get it done. Got to get it. So done. if I, if I want, am I sitting on the couch listening to this podcast right now? What's my first move? I, I'm going to say what my assumption would be, which we know what assuming can do a physical to see where you're at. And what does that physical entail? If that's your answer, and is it blood panel? Is it blood test right away? What do I need to do to get this process started? Absolutely. It's a, uh, you know, we used to call it a physical. It's a meeting with your healthcare provider, right? You know, whether the examination isn't as important as it used to be, you know, that crazy ass stethoscope I carry around, you know, that's a, that's some old technology. We got better stuff than that now. Uh, but yeah, meeting with your healthcare provider to get your blood pressure measured, get a blood test to check your cholesterol and your sugars. If you got a ashtray next to your bed when you wake up in the morning, get rid of that. Pick a plan to start exercising every day and fix your food. And that's not just something we got to do as individuals. As a society, we got to fix our food. Our food is a disaster, right? Our food is killing yeah. us. And we got to do something about fixing our food. Every smoking commercial that you see, we're going to end it on this. They got their trachea out or they got a voice box. 
you always hear the words black lungs, your lungs are affected. It's a card, it's a respiratory disease caused by nicotine and the smoke and the inflammation and the inhalation of, of smoke and, and all of the car- carcinogens that come through tobacco. Yeah. What does smoking do to the heart? Yeah, uh, it is. So that build, it, it is the leading cause of, of heart attack and stroke is smoking. 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 It's the, uh, it, it is incredibly damaging to the blood vessels. Cholesterol plaque builds up in people who have high cholesterol in areas where the lining of the blood vessel is injured and inflamed. That allows the cholesterol to go in there and start causing those plaques and those blockages. Taking the, all that, the carcinogens and, and crap that are in cigarette smoke and put them in your bloodstream just inflames the whole lining of the it's blood It's like vessel. a magnet for plaque then. It, it just is. bring it on. That's absolutely right. You can right. live here. That's exactly I just, right. I just made you a little tunnel for you to live in. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So smoking is not, Huge. I mean, it causes lung cancer, but it's going to cause heart attacks more heart so. Heart attack and stroke. Uh, I don't know about more so, right? You're gonna but not more so than lung yeah. cancer, but yeah, it's, yeah, a, it's yeah. the leading Absolutely. It's the leading cause of heart attacks and, uh, and strokes it's in the most. Well, it's the most closely associated. There's lots of different ways you can measure it. I want to get too associated. In, 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 in statistics. But yeah, whether you smoke or not is a bigger predictor of your risk than your cholesterol, your blood pressure, your sugar, or your family history. So smoking is that bad, right? And I saw a guy today just came, you know, people who have advanced vascular disease, you have know, had blockages ever at operations. And, you know, I, I sometimes almost forget to ask them if they're still smoking. I mean, you know, it's just shocking to me that somebody who's been through all those, you know, this guy has had a heart attack. He had bypass surgery. He's had six stents put in his heart. He's had, uh, he's got a complete blockage in one of his carotids. Um, and he's had blockages in his legs that had to be operated on and bypassed. He's coming into my office, you know, to talk about keeping track of all that. And it's the first time I'd met him, keeping track of all that, getting his blood pressure and cholesterol under control. And just kind of as a, almost at the end of our conversation, I was like, well, you don't, you don't smoke, right? And he's like, oh, no, I smoke a pack a day. I was like, well, we, let's, you know, I should have started there, you know. Uh, oh, uh, yeah, so crazy. Uh, uh, it is, it is. And I, you know, why do you, and I always ask the question, why do you think you're in my office? Um, and uh, I don't want to be there. I'm going to go there for preventive reasons. That's <laughs> yeah. why I'm going there. That's right. I don't want to see you in any other condition except friends and, and maybe having a beer sometime. And last question, Dr. Block, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I know your time is valuable. You say not as much of a plumber, but I'm going to think that it is. Um, my daughter's 11. You said 11 to 13. Let's go get this saliva panel or a blood panel and see if she has this gene. It's more rare as a youngster to have a heart attack. It can happen. Correct me if I'm wrong. It can happen in your teens, your 20s, your 30s. I just, John Bartolo, the, the a host of a UFC podcast, the John Bartolo Show, 41, dead of a heart attack in Las Vegas a couple weeks ago, a month ago. Um, when do I, when do I assume a heart attack can get you? Can it get you in your teenager years? Should everybody listening to this podcast be, be aware that it can happen at any time at any age? No, it really, it's pretty darn unlikely in your teens and twenties. Once again, people always find an exception, teens, twenties, even thirties in the absence of a bad genetic problem or stimulant use or something like that. Um, it's pretty darn uncommon. Um, you know, really it's a disease of middle age and above, right? It's, you know, forties, fifties, sixties, seventies, eighties. Um, the longer you live, the, the, the longer, the larger the risk. It's awesome. I really appreciate the, just the education. And I just think everybody needs to be aware that you can 
live until you're 75, 80. And even though my grandpa was 49, my dad was 54, my dad's brother, my Uncle Mel, my dad's real biological brother is, I don't want to, I don't want to get caught lying because he listens to this, but I believe he's, 62 61 now 62 60 maybe but he's outlived both of them so that shows you that in the same genetic the same two parents um and i don't know how well he's taking care of himself diet wise or checkup wise or medication wise preventive medicine wise it just shows you like my family would probably tell you that they got sick of me saying man i wonder if i'm gonna die by the time i'm 54 you know i don't want to think like that I don't want to be pessimistic about it. I want to be preventive. I want to be optimistic. I want to be healthy. I want to live forever. I want to be, I want to set the new world record. As long as I have my mind and I can think for myself, I want to set the new world record of living the longest and who knows if it's doable, but I don't, life is so awesome. And it's just crazy to think that I've been without my dad this long, never really knew my grandpa. He died when I was two. It's crazy to think that I would never want to leave my daughter like that. I would never want my mom to put me in the ground because I did not take the right necessary steps to be more preventive, preventative. So I appreciate you coming on and educating uh, the audience. It's my pleasure. We're going to come back here when you're in your 80s and I'm in my 90s. And we'll do it again, yeah. right? Because you're going to be living. I would love to. You're going to be fighting that long. Yeah, we'll do it from, no we'll do it from like a, a fishing camp or a, a that pub, sounds a pub good. somewhere. That sounds good. Last thing though, and I think Talk it's important, me. is, you know, so as, as dedicated as you've been to this, like think about how many times you haven't been, how many months you've gone without taking medicines, right? At different times. How many times I've had to like track you down because you missed an appointment and, and hadn't. So even somebody who's as motivated as you are, right? It, it's hard. And you know, I just think that's, that's an important message, right? None of us are perfect. None of us are perfect. But, you know, and, and just because you stopped taking your medicine for a month or you didn't go to your doctor's uh, appointment, we're always willing to come see you again, right? And perfect can be the enemy of good. You know, you just got to kind of keep at it. Stay at it. Yeah. It's never too late. And if you do get off your medicines, get back in there and see where you're at because it's surprising to me. And I love the correlation you made of medicine works as long as you're taking, you know, if you get off medicine, it just stops working like that. It's not like you could put 10 pills in your body on Monday and say, well, I'm good for the next 30 days. That's not how it works. And that was a very important message to me of don't double up on Friday, take your regular dosage and stay on it consistently and let medicine do what it was meant to do. That's, I mean, we're very lucky that we live in an age that we can go and get forecasted of saying, Hey, if you get on this now, we can keep your heart healthy. That's we're we can't take that for granted. That's crazy to think that we would ever be like, I'm bionic. I'm the bionic man. I'm Lee Majors, a $6 million bionic. I ain't, I don't want that attitude. I, my ego's, sometimes it's probably gotten out of whack. I'm never going to let my ego get out of whack about my health. It's crazy to me. Cool. Cool. I'm going to get a, an appointment. Uh, I'll text you and get an appointment tomorrow. I got to get my panels. Everybody get in and see your healthcare provider and be preventative. This has been an awesome conversation and I hope you all got something out of it. Dr. Michael Block, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We'll do it again. Sounds good. Thank you all for listening. This life ain't for everybody. Leith Lofton, take us out. This song is called What You Gonna Do When The Money's All Gone. We're all equal, that's what I think. I don't believe even has a bank. Make good use of your time on earth. And don't make a dollar bill all this worth. Cause I'd rather be poor living off in a hole than rich as hell without a soul. Life on earth won't last too long So what you gonna do when the money's all gone? 
I'd rather be poor 